When did you last feel like an outsider? It's coming up for holiday season now and maybe you've been to a foreign country and you've come out of the airport and you've been surrounded by people speaking in a language that you don't understand and you've got no idea uh, what they're trying to tell you as they offer you taxis and, and various different things. And then you look at the signage and these shapes are just unfamiliar to you. Uh, these letters are not in English. They are just shapes, they're characters that you've not seen before. And then you go and try to order something to eat and you can't read what it says on the menu. And people just look so different to you and it's very clear to you that you're an outsider. Maybe you feel like an outsider in your workplace or in your class, or maybe in your, the, the housing development that you live in. You've maybe shared that you're a Christian, and while people are not exactly hostile to you, uh, there's a coolness in the way they treat you, a kind of distance, and you wonder whether you'll ever really be able to make close friendships with these people, because they, they know what you stand for, uh, they know how you live your life, and they're putting a distance between you and them. Maybe you're here today and you feel like an outsider because you're in church. You're not normally in church and you've come along here and you're thinking, what have I let myself into? Uh, this is not what I'm used to. This is very different to my usual Sunday morning. Well, welcome to you if you're feeling like an outsider. Hopefully you won't feel like one uh, before you leave later on. Or maybe you've been coming around the chapel uh, for a while now and you still feel like an outsider. Everybody that you meet seems to have been in this church for decades and uh, they know people that you don't know, and they mention places that you don't know. The Rose Street building, Canty Bay. What are these places? You wonder if you'll ever become part of the furniture here. You still feel like an outsider, even though you've been here for some time. It's not nice to feel like an outsider, is it? Uh, I had some experience of this uh, in my teenage years. Uh, we as a family moved uh, from one side of the country to the other, and uh, I had to move school during high school, and uh, it was quite clear that I was an outsider. I talked very differently to my classmates. Uh, they'd grown up through primary school together. They'd done the first few years at secondary school together, uh, and I definitely felt that I did not fit in. It was clear to everyone else that I was an outsider, and I very much felt like one. And it's quite easy to feel isolated when we're on the outside, when we're, when we're different, when we're not part of the crowd, as it were. And as you look through Romans, it's clear that part of Paul's reason for writing this letter is to stop this kind of them and us mentality, this insider and outsider mentality. Paul is concerned about the relationships between Christians from a Jewish background and a non-Jewish background. In, in other words, Gentiles. You see, the first senior members of the church in Rome uh, were probably Jewish Christians. They'd have known their Bible very well, and when it clicked to them that Jesus was the promised Messiah, their lives were radically changed. But for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they weren't used to the, the Scriptures. Uh, they would have needed to have been taught even what the word Christ means. And then disaster strikes. In uh, AD 49, uh, the emperor Claudius expels the Jewish Christians from Rome. And so the, the Gentile Christians have to step up and take on leadership roles within the church. And then when Claudius dies, the Jewish Christians are allowed back into Rome again. And you can see where the tension's going to come. Uh, the Jewish Christians are assuming that they'll get back into the places of power within the church. You know, they think they are superior 
to the Gentiles because of their history. But when we looked at chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago with uh, Paul Reese, our lead pastor, uh, we saw that the Apostle Paul makes it clear that there's no room for this attitude in the church, no room for an insider-outside mentality. There's to be no in-crowd in the church, no room for boasting about our past. If you look at chapter 3 of Romans and verse 27, you'll see that it says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. And the reason is given there in verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, we're all sinners, whether we're Jewish or we're Gentile. We're all deserving of God's judgment. And the only way to be justified, uh, the only way to be, if you like, made right with God is through faith in Christ, not through our works, our own achievements, our own obedience, our own rule keeping, our own past. No, faith in God is what counts. And Paul's point is that God is not just the God of the Jews only. He's the God of the Gentiles too. We see that in verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. But the question for us this morning as we move into chapter 4 is what is Paul's evidence for this argument? What is Paul's evidence that the only way to be right with God is through faith in him? Well, please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, and I'll read the whole chapter for us. So Romans chapter 4, and that's page 1131 on the church Bibles. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was, was it, yes, sorry, was after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a sign of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. 
because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So what is Paul's first piece of evidence that the only way we're made right with God is by faith? Well, it's this. Abraham was justified by faith in God. We see that in verses 1 to 8. What Paul does here is he takes us back to the Old Testament to Abraham and he throws out this question in verse 1. Uh, can you see what he is, he's getting at there in verse 1? Paul's question is basically about how Abraham found favor with God. Was it through Abraham's works? No, says Paul. If Abraham found favor with God through works, then he'd have something to boast about. And boasting is excluded. We saw that last time in Romans chapter 3. If it was about his works and his rule keeping, then it's like God owes him something. It's like God is due him his wages. But that's not how God works. Abraham's faith was not some kind of praiseworthy act that God recognized and rewarded. That might be how Santa Claus works. You know, he sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That might be how Santa Claus works. But that's not how the God of the Bible works. So how was Abraham actually made right with God then? Well, have a look with me at verse 3, because that, that gives us the answer to this question. Verse 3 says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, as we heard from Matt earlier on, the big challenge facing Abraham was to rely on God's promise to give him lots of descendants even though he was childless, and even though he and his wife were very old. And what Paul understands is this, that Genesis 15 verse 16 expresses what it means to be justified 
by faith. Twice in the verses in front of us, Paul talks about Abraham's righteousness before God as being something that's credited to him, something that is given to him as a gift, not something that Abraham has earned. And the point is, how could he have earned it anyway? Uh, Paul is implying in verse 4 that Abraham was an ungodly man when he was justified. Uh, So there's no way that Abraham could claim uh, that he'd been obedient and that he'd been faithful. Uh, The righteousness had to be credited to him as a gift. There was no other way. And uh, if you're not convinced by that, look at how these verses continue in verses 6 to 8. Because you'll see King David says exactly the same thing. If you know the story of King David in the Old Testament, this was a man who uh, coveted another man's wife. Uh, He committed adultery with her. Uh, He lied about it. He had the the husband killed. Uh, There's no way that he could have been made right with God uh, based based on his goodness, based on his own merit. And yet, amazingly, uh, he can say these words in verses 7 and 8, quoted straight from Psalm 32. This is David's own personal testimony. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. By quoting uh, this psalm here, Paul's argument is that God's crediting of righteousness to Abraham also knows also involves his non-crediting I know that's bad English but his non-crediting of his sin so there's a crediting of of righteousness of being made right with God but there's also a non-crediting of Abraham's sin Paul's painting a picture here that there's only ever been one way to be right with God and that is through faith uh, that there's, there's no other way to be right with God. Now, I, I realize that uh, change is something that is very popular in our uh, society. In, in other ways of life, we're always looking for new ways to do things. For example, uh, in the old days when you wanted to watch a movie, you had to get your car keys and get in the car and go down to a place called Blockbuster And then you'd walk down the aisles to find your favorite genre, and you'd browse at the shelves, like literally browse, nothing to do with with, with, uh, sort of uh, IT or anything, actually browse these shelves, and pick out your favorite uh, movie on something like this. And you would take it to the counter, and you would pay the person, not through your phone or, or with a card, you'd write a check or you'd use cash, and then you'd take it home, and if you, were, if you were lucky, it would have been rewound, and you would sit down, and uh, you would watch the movie, keep it for a few days, and then take it back. Uh, that is not how we watch movies nowadays. I could, and you could if you want, watch a movie uh, on your phone, but I know you would, you would never do that uh, in the middle of a sermon. We're always looking for new ways to do things. Out with the old, in with the new. But that's not the case when it comes to being right with God. There's only been one way, and it's only been through faith. There is not an Old Testament way to be right with God and a New Testament way. There is one way to be right with God. And there's only one way to be right with God because God never changes. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. We sang about this earlier on in the service. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they change not. 
as thou hast been, thou forever, forever wilt be. I'm not very good at the old English. Forever will be. There is only one way to be right with God. There has only ever been one way to be right with God. And it is through faith. And Abraham is a prime example of this great truth. But here's the thing. I've not just uh, told you all this as a history lesson. And, and Paul is not putting this passage in his letter to the Romans merely as a history lesson. There is much more to it than that. Abraham was justified by faith in God, and so are we. And that is my second point. We see that in verses 9 to 25. Let me give you two reasons how we can know that this is the case. Two reasons which show that we also are justified by faith. The first one is there in verse 9 to 12, where we see that Abraham was justified before circumcision. We see in verses 9 to 12 that Paul makes it clear that Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness before he was circumcised. Let me read verse 10 for us again. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. If you don't know what circumcision is, uh, I'm not surprised by that in the least. It's not a word that we use a lot. Uh, it's, it's a word that's used to describe the, cut, the, the cuts that Abraham uh, and his male descendants and dependents got as a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And then the point is that circumcision was just a sign, a seal of the righteousness that Abraham already had before he was circumcised. And so circumcision, Paul's point is, is, circumcision is, is unnecessary to belong to God. And so Abraham became the father of all who have the same kind of faith, whether they are circumcised or uncircumcised, whether they are from a Jewish background or whether they are Gentile. The second reason is because the promise to Abraham was granted through faith. The promise I'm talking about is the one that we read in Genesis that, that Abraham would have many descendants. We see this in verses 13 to 25. You see the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, that he would be the heir of the world, was given in view of his faith. We see that in verse 13. Let me read that for you. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. It was not given through the law, as 14 and 15 tell us, because all the law does is reveal sin and bring God's wrath upon us. No, verse 16, the promise comes by faith, according to grace, to guarantee that all who are of the same faith as Abraham might be heirs of the same promise. I hope you're seeing it's by faith, by faith, by faith. I want you to notice as well, in verse 17, what it was that Abraham believed about God. There's two things. I wonder if you can spot them with me. There's two things that Abraham believes about God. Down there in verse 17. The first thing is that God gives life to the dead. The second thing is that he calls into existence things that don't exist. 
We see that in the story of creation as God speaks things into existence. This is what Abraham believed when he received the promise about becoming the father of many nations. And it was because of this knowledge of God that Abraham's faith didn't waver about God's promise to make him the father of many nations, even though he was very old and even though he was childless. In fact, I love the fact that it's not just that his faith didn't waver, it's more positive than that. It says that his faith was actually strengthened in verse 20 because he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do as he promised. This is the kind of obedient faith that Abraham illustrates for us. But here's the amazing thing. As I say, this is not a history lesson. This is, this is for us as well. Because God's promise to Abraham was not written for him alone, but also for us. See that in verse 23 and verse 24. Righteousness will be credited to all who share in the resurrection faith of Abraham. And those of us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You see, Abraham might have heard from God directly in his day and age. But God's promise has been recorded for us in the scriptures. So that we as people who have come after Abraham can believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. And so that we can be justified by faith as well, made right with God and experience new life now and share an eternal life with him in the future. Here's the thing that I want to get across to you this morning if you remember nothing else. Abraham was justified by faith and so are we. It's the only way to be right with God. There is no other way to be right with God. And so that means any kind of boasting, uh, any kind of attempts at you know, making our church this kind of private, exclusive club for the really moral and the really religious, uh, any kind of inside or outside or attitude because of social status, because of education, because of ethnic background, that's got to be challenged and it's got to be excluded. Abraham's faith was not something to boast about and neither should ours. Abraham's faith involved a total reliance on God for acceptance and for the fulfillment of his promises. And so Abraham is both a model of saving faith and the one whose um, God-given faith uniquely advanced God's amazing salvation plan. Maybe you're here uh, this morning and your approach to living life is is really just about being, being good, being as good as you can, and hoping that when the time comes, you'll be able to stand before God in good stead. My question to you this morning as we've looked at this passage is, uh, what is good? Who gets to decide what good is, and how do you know if you've been good enough? And who are you comparing yourself to? Good compared to who? I hope that Romans chapter 4 presents you with some questions about your way of thinking. And you'll see that there is actually only one way to be right with God. It's not through our works. It's not through our rule keeping. It's not through our obedience. not through our religiousness. Christian faith is not about being good. Nor is it about wishful thinking or crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. 
You see, Christian faith is specifically a Christ-focused confidence in God. It's a reliance upon God's saving act as he sends his son to die on a cross for our sins. It's a confidence in Jesus' victorious resurrection from the dead. Christ really lived. Uh, He really was delivered, as verse 25 says, delivered over to death for our sins. And he really was raised to life for our justification. And so everybody who seeks God, whether they're a really religious sort or whether they know in their hearts of hearts that they are just morally bankrupt, whether other people think you're great or not, that's not the point. We're only justified by faith. And so new life in Christ is available to you this morning. Not by what you've done, uh, but by what God has done for you in making you right with him. That is open to you this morning and we would love to talk to you more about that before you leave. But maybe you're not completely new to church. Maybe you've been coming to this Roman series for a few weeks now. And maybe you're starting to see the, 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 really the, the way to be right with God is through being justified by faith. I hope you're starting to see that God's claim in this passage is for you to, that you can be someone who can be justified, and that you can know the hope of sins forgiven. And my question to you would be, what's stopping you? You've heard the same message for a few weeks now. Why don't you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ today? And to my fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you that are Christians here this morning, the Jewish believers at this time believed that having the law and being circumcised were safe shelters, if you like, against God's displeasure. My question to you this morning for you to think about is, you know, what things do we substitute for the only safe shelter that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you're, if you're being honest, you're somebody who very easily slips back into a kind of works righteousness. Maybe you are boastful, even on the inside, even only boasting to yourself. Maybe you think that God in in some way does owe you something, that God is lucky to have you on his team. Can you see how this is wrong thinking based on this passage? Maybe you're a Christian here this morning too and Uh, There's someone that you know that really needs to hear this message that you can only be right with God through faith in him. Maybe the example of Abraham could help you show a friend or a family member how to be right with God. It might be somebody who is trying really hard to be good and you can show them that that that's not going to stand them in good stead when they face God. Or maybe it's somebody who feels so ashamed of the things they've done Uh, unworthy to walk through the door of a church, feeling that they are absolutely hopeless, absolutely lost, without any chance of being right with God. Show them from this passage that the gospel is not for good people, that the gospel is for the ungodly. And if they come to him, they're joining the same club that we're part of, forgiven sinners made right by God. Imagine for a moment if we as a church fully grasped the truth about justification by faith, I think it would affect all of our relationships 
I think it would affect our relationship with God as we come to him again and again, empty-handed, reminded that our salvation is not bound up in something in us. It's not about any merit that we have. But it's all because God justifies the ungodly and because he credits us with his righteousness. I think it would also change our relationships within the church and outside the church. I mentioned at the start how you know, it's not particularly nice to feel like an outsider. If we took justification by faith to heart, uh, we would recognize that each of us is on level ground before God. Uh, the length of time that we've been a Christian doesn't make us any better than the person who was baptized a couple of weeks ago uh, or the guest who's exploring Christianity for the first time. Our length of membership at Charlotte Chapel and the various ministries that we're involved in gives us no cause to feel superior to anyone else in the church. If we took justification by faith to heart, we'd be less concerned about the things among us that make us different. We'd have less of an insider-outsider mentality. More than that, I think we'd actually be glad of the diversity of ages and ethnicities and classes and backgrounds because what it does is it shows that the gospel is at work, at redeeming a people from all walks of life. And I think we'd be more ready to embrace those who are new, those who are not like us, those who come from different backgrounds to ourselves, recognizing that we, were, we are all one in Christ and that we were all at one point outsiders to the gospel. We are each of us who are saved on level ground before God. We are those who believe in God, the God who raised Jesus from death, this Jesus who died for our sins. I want us just to take a moment of quietness just now uh, to reflect on what we've heard and to think about how we might respond to what we've heard. And then I'll lead us in prayer.